In a while, but if you have your Bible, let's open it to Exodus chapter 33. Exodus chapter 33, you know, with holidays and uh, different events on Sunday nights. It's been a few weeks since we have been in our text, in our study of Exodus 33. Uh, we have already covered all the way up to verse 18, and uh, so we're going to pick up there in verse 18 and read through the end of the chapter. And uh, the subject of this passage of Scripture is the glory of God, the glory of God. Exodus thirty-three eighteen says, And he said, that is Moses, I beseech thee, show me thy glory. And he said, this is God responding, I will make all my goodness pass before thee, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before thee. And will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. And he said, Thou canst not see my face, for there shall no man see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me, and thou shalt stand upon a rock. And it shall come to pass, while my glory passeth by, that I will put thee in the cleft of the rock, and will cover thee with my hand while I pass by, and I will take mine hand, and thou shalt see my back parts, but my face shall not be seen. Let's pray. Dear Lord, it is our sincere desire to draw near to you through the study of your word. Lord, we understand that worship is not over when the singing ends, but that your word really is the centerpiece that informs our worship. And that it is where we get our clearest view of you, and it is what fills our hearts so that we can express worship for you. Father, my desire is to say what you have said, to accurately interpret your text, and to make a right application. And so, Lord, I just pray and ask that you would fill me with your Holy Spirit, that you would lead me and guide me. Lord, that you would be in control of my thoughts and of my words. And, Father, that we might glorify you and that we might see your glory. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As we are studying our way through the Scripture, uh, we began in Genesis and uh, worked our way through book one, and now we are into the second book, the book of Exodus. We must keep our eyes open for the introduction and the emphasis of theological subjects and themes. And so as we are entering into the entryway of Scripture, as you think about it, God is introducing theological themes and subjects to us, and he is emphasizing those things. Thinking back, we have seen subjects such as sin. That shows up in Genesis chapter 3 when Adam and Eve commit sin, and we learn about, about the, the repercussions of sin and the fall of mankind. Uh, we see the introduction of judgment. God must judge sin, and he judges the sin of Adam and Eve. He judges uh, the sin of Cain, and then we see the judgment of God on the sin of the world in the flood. And so we see this theme, this theological theme of the judgment of God. 
We've also seen the theological theme of redemption, have we not? We've seen that repeatedly with Adam and Eve, with Cain, with Noah, with uh, Joseph and his brothers, with Moses and Israel. We've seen the theme of the covenant, that God is a covenant-making God. He makes a covenant with Adam, and he makes a covenant with Noah, and he makes a covenant with Abraham, and he renews that covenant with Isaac and Jacob and with Moses. We've seen the theme of forgiveness, especially in the story of Joseph. And God is teaching us that this is a theological truth and that this is something that he practices and he demonstrates it for us. We've also seen the theme of suffering. How many times have we seen God's people suffering just in these first two books of the Bible? Of course, we see the theme of deliverance, the subject of deliverance, where God delivers his people. And most recently, he has delivered his people through the leadership of Moses. The law has now been introduced, and it takes up a major space in this part of Scripture as it becomes the foundation for the relationship between Israel and God. And that's just to name a few. And so I just want to point that out to you that not only are we studying the individual verses, the individual stories that are contained here, but we're also keeping an eye open for subjects that are being introduced, theological themes, because God is teaching us something. It is called this progressive uh, revelation, this biblical uh, theology. Well, today's text prompts us to notice the glory of God. The glory of God has a higher profile uh, as God comes to dwell with his people. It takes on this higher profile in the book of Exodus. Uh, If you just do an overview, you will find zero mentions of the glory of God in Genesis. Now, glory is mentioned twice, but it's referring to the glory of a father or the glory of a man. No mention of the glory of God in Genesis. And then if you look at, uh, at, uh, at Leviticus, there's two mentions of the glory of God. And the same is true in Deuteronomy, two mentions of the glory of God. Numbers bumps it up a little bit, six mentions of the glory of God. And then in the book of Exodus, the glory of God is mentioned nine times. Now, while that may not seem like a lot in the totality of the 40 chapters, When it is charted against the other books of the Pentateuch, we find this sharp increase in the book of Exodus on the glory of God. And so the text like we are in today causes us to take notice of that and say, hey, we're not just talking about the experience that Moses had with the glory of God. We're actually seeing that God has given his glory a higher profile in the book of Exodus. In Exodus, we see the glory of God in the cloud, it says, as the pillar of cloud is leading the people of Israel, the glory of God is seen there. And then we see the glory of God on top of Mount Sinai. The glory descends on the mountain as God comes to deliver his law. At the end of the book, we find the glory of God fills the tabernacle. Once the tabernacle is built, it's complete, it is erected, the glory of God fills that tabernacle. And then, of course, we have the glory of God in our text today. 
In Exodus, uh, we see the, the glory of God being highly profile, and it is coming really to this pinnacle point here in our text. I would say that this is really the sharpest peak in the mountain range of the glory of God in the book of Exodus. If you remember in the first part of this chapter, God had threatened to remove his presence from his people because of their repeated rebellion. They had repeatedly rebelled against him. They've been stubborn. They've provoked him. And so God tells Moses, you know what, Moses, I'll keep my promise I'll keep my covenant, I'll send the blessings, I will protect you and I will prosper you, but I'm not going to go with you. I'm not going to go with you because uh, I may destroy these people for their rebellion, which in turn prompted Moses to appeal to God to continue with them. If you remember, Moses had a special time intercession, and he said, God, if you don't go, don't, don't send us. Don't let us go. We don't just want your blessings. We don't just want your protection. We don't just want your provision. We want you. We want your presence. After Moses makes intercession for the people, and God agrees to continue in his presence, then Moses makes a personal request in verse 18. He said, I beseech thee, show me thy glory. So after Moses feels the risk of losing the presence of God in the camp of Israel, and he makes that concerted effort to appeal and to mediate between God and his people, and God agrees to continue his presence, Moses realizes that he wants more. He wants to see more of God. He wants to see God's glory unveiled, if you will, not in the cloudy pillar, not in the smoky mountaintop of Mount Sinai, not from a distance in the tabernacle, but he wants to see him up close and personal. And so I want to take this text to make some observations about the glory of God. We'll, we'll, we'll cover what the text says, but I also want to expand out from there to help you and I understand what is the glory of God. That term gets thrown around a lot. Uh, another term that gets thrown around is the Shekinah glory, right? Now, no doubt, if you've been in church five minutes, you've heard some preacher talk about the Shekinah glory of God. Well, I've got a little bit of a pet peeve with that. I won't, uh, I won't bore you with it this evening, but Shekinah is glory is not actually in the Bible. Shekinah means dwelling, continuing. And so is God's glory continuing on the tabernacle? Sure it is, but there's not actually a verse in the Bible that says Shekinah glory. And so my pet peeve is, is that sometimes preachers preach it like it is. And uh, so I, I want to be accurate to the word, but that's a hobby horse I shouldn't have gotten off on. All right, first observation. We can't handle the full glory of God. We can't handle the full glory of God. Moses makes the request to God, show me your glory. And God says, you know what, I'll let my goodness pass before you. I will proclaim my attributes to you. 
but you can't see me full on. You can't look me full in the face because it would evaporate him. Like a nuclear blast would be the only thing that I could imagine that it would be like. Uh, that if Moses were to see the full glory of God, it is so powerful, it is so radiant, it is so glaring and hot that it would literally destroy him, physically kill him to see God's glory. And so to accommodate Moses' request, God says that he can stand in, in a crevice of a rocky mountain. And so they are there in the rocky part of the region. They are there, Mount Sinai. And God says, you can stand in the cleft of the rock, the, the crevice of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand. And then I will pass by, and then I will remove my hand, and I will let you see my back. You will get to see the afterglow of my glory, if you will. You don't get the full focus of glory because it would kill you. Well, to get an idea of this and to try to wrap our heads around what is this glory of God that would annihilate Moses just by seeing it that way, uh, we must figure out what the glory of God is by cross-referencing Scripture with Scripture. We've got, to, we've got to branch out a little bit. We've got to look at some other Scriptures to see what is this glory. First, the word glory itself means splendor. It means radiance. It means magnificence or outshining. And so uh, it is the idea that it is the radiance of God's greatness. It is the outshining of God's perfection. It is the splendor of God's might that just emanates from Him all the time. As a matter of fact, to, to get an idea of it, uh, I would remind you that in Revelation chapter 21, verse 23, it says that in heaven there is not a sun or a moon because there's no need of it because the glory of God and of the Lamb is the light thereof. And so God is so luminous that He Himself illuminates heaven. And so God just emanates this radiance all the time because of how great he is. Um, perhaps the, the, the closest thing, and I don't think it really even comes close, but perhaps the closest thing we could liken it to is the sun. Right? The sun just, just radiates all the time. It is this giant ball of burning plasma. And it is continually burning, and it is a tremendous source of energy, of power, and it just radiates all the time among the other things that it is doing. As we think about it scripturally, I'm reminded that on the Mount of Transfiguration, Matthew said that the glory of the transfigured Christ that his face did shine as the sun, and that his raiment was white as light. So if you remember, uh, Jesus took uh, James, John, and Peter up on the mountain, and they were there, and they saw Jesus transfigured, and God spoke to him on that mountain. And when they saw that, the way they tried to describe it was that his face shined like the sun, and that his garment, his robe, glowed 
like a light. And so they're describing the glory of Christ that they saw on the Mount of Transfiguration. If you have your Bible there with you, hold your place in Exodus and go to Second Peter with me, if you would. Peter was one of the eyewitnesses who, were, who was on the Mount of Transfiguration. And years later, when he is writing his epistle, he makes reference to that. And he says in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16, he says, For we have not followed cunningly devised fables. And so what he is doing is he's given testimony to the, the, the surety of the record that he is telling. And he's saying, look, we didn't follow these, these fantastic stories, these made-up fables, when we made known unto you the power and the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. And so Peter says, look, I was an eyewitness of the majesty of Christ, so what I am telling you is not secondhand information, it's not third-hand information, it is first-hand information. I witnessed it with my own eyes. What did he witness? Verse 17, he talks about the transfiguration. He says, for he, that is Jesus, received from God the Father honor and glory. When there came a voice to him from the excellent glory, saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And this voice which came from heaven we heard when we were with him in the holy mount. And so what Peter says is there was glory radiating off of Jesus, but there was also this excellent glory in heaven from which we heard the voice of God speaking. It's interesting, the terminology that he used there when he calls it excellent glory. Excellent glory. Uh, that, that phrase there is translated from this Greek word that includes the prefix mega. Now, I won't attempt to try to pronounce the rest of it, but it is this mega luminous glory. It, it is saying the furthest degree of intensity of brightness. So when that word mega was prefixed to another word, it means to the furthest or most intense degree and then glory refers to the brightness the radiance the splendor and so Peter says it is to the furthest degree glory light brightness radiance and so the glory was literally brighter than anything they had ever seen Anything they'd ever seen. There was really no frame of reference that Peter could use. He just said, look, it was the brightest, glorious, most radiant light we ever saw. You, you, you take it to the furthest degree, and that's what it is. The Apostle Paul caught a glimpse of God's glory, if you remember, when he was on the road to Damascus. And years later, when he was describing his experience to King Agrippa, he said this. He said, at midday, right, when the sun is the brightest, O king, I saw in the way a light from heaven above the brightness of the sun, 
shining round about me. And so Paul catches a glimpse of the glory of God on the road to Damascus when Jesus appears to him. And he says, look, it was midday and there was a light brighter than the sun that shined on me. And what he is doing is he's trying to articulate the glory of God. He is describing it as being brighter than the sun. And if you remember, he immediately was driven to the ground. You know, one of the things that's interesting about the Hebrew word for uh, glory, uh, kabod, it also means weighty or heavy. So it's not just radiance, but it's this idea of this radiance with weight which would make sense as to why it would drive Paul and his companions to the ground. It drives Moses to his knees, to his face in Exodus 34 when he catches a glimpse of God's glory. And so this glory is this bright radiance. And when Paul saw it, it blinded him for three days. For three days it blinded him. And so it is this glorious light. So that gives us an idea of what we're dealing with when we refer to the glory of God and why we cannot handle seeing the full glory of God without it hurting us. And so Moses says, show me your glory. And God says, you can't handle seeing my full glory, but I will let you see a glimpse of my afterglow. And then second observation is that God's glory is revealed in person and in word. And so even though there is a division of chapter, the narrative continues on. In Exodus 33, Moses says, show me your glory. God says, I will cover you in the cleft of the rock. I will pass by. I'll let you see my glory after uh, I pass by. And, uh, and then God tells him in chapter 34 to, to carve out two more stones of tablets, bring them up onto the mountain with him because he's going to give him a new copy of the Ten Commandments because Moses broke them the last time. And then God's glory descends in verse 5. And so Exodus 34, verse 5, And the Lord descended in the cloud, and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed by before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, and that will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children, upon the children's children, unto the third and to the fourth generation. And Moses made haste and bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. I find it very interesting that God did not just reveal his glory visibly. Moses' only request, show me your glory. I want to see your glory. I want to, I want to, I want to comprehend how, how great you are, how glorious you are, how mighty you are. And God says, yes, I will show you visibly, but I'm also going to tell you audibly. My glory is not just revealed through sight. Notice that when God passed by, he also proclaimed his attributes verbally. He proclaims his name, the Lord. 
the Lord God. And then he goes on to say that the, he, is, uh, he is the Lord God who is merciful and gracious and that he's abundant in goodness and long-suffering and truth. And so here's the scene. Moses is in the cleft of the rock. God descends in the cloud. God covers the cleft, allows the cloud to remove. And then as he passes by, he is saying all these things. And Moses is hearing them, and then he catches a glimpse of the back of God and the glory that follows. But it does make sense when we consider that Scripture places an emphasis on the Word of God. I think about verses in Psalms that says that he's magnified his, his Word above his name. Uh, we think about verses in the New Testament. It says faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. Faith does not come by seeing God. Faith comes by hearing the word of God. And so in that sense, it, it, does, it does compute that not only does God reveal his glory in his person, but also in his word. Think about it because the manifestation of God is not always physically present in the world, but from the time of the first inspired word, his word has been a witness in this world. And God's glory can be seen in his word as well as in his person. As you think about the consistency in Scripture, I would take you to one of, I think, the, the most pertinent passages, and that's in the Gospel of John. Remember, John begins with, uh, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then it says in John 1.14, And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His, anybody remember? Glory. As of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Check that out. Not only did the disciples catch glimpses of God's glory in the incarnate Christ, they said, we beheld his glory. We, we got to live with him. We got to walk with him. We got to study him. We got to observe him for three and a half years. And we beheld his glory. But not only was it just the glory of his person, but it was also uh, the fact that Scripture takes particular effort to refer to him as the word that was made flesh, the logos, the, the verbal expression. And so they didn't just see the glory in the actions of Christ. They also caught glimpses of his glory in the word of Christ. It makes sense, though, because our eyes can deceive us, can they not? And, uh, man, I, I've discovered uh, that with age, it is common for you to lose your nearsight, right? And, uh, and I, don't, I hate that when you talk to a doctor or something about it, they say something like, well, you're, you know, the, your eyes, bottom of your eyes fall out. Well, that's, I don't like that, right? And, uh, and what I've discovered is I can't always make things out as clearly as I used to. And so sometimes my eyes deceive me, and I think I see one thing and I see another. Well, that could be a problem if we're trying to obey God, we're trying to understand God, we're trying to uh, rightly uh, represent God. Our eyes can deceive us. We don't always see it accurately. The other issue is that if we only see it with our eyes, we only experience it that way, that our memories can also fade, right? There were things that I saw vividly years ago, 
And now my memories have faded, and I can't remember everything that I saw about that. And so if we only saw the glory of God with our eyes visibly, not only could our eyes deceive us, but over the years our memories could fade, and, uh, and it would affect the way that we remember uh, God and His appearance. And so God doesn't just reveal His glory in His appearances, but he reveals his glory in his eternal word. By the way, you know that's what Peter was talking about. He transitioned from saying we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. We beheld his glory. And then he goes on to say this. We have a more sure word of prophecy. Even though Peter saw the glory of God and he heard God speak from heaven, he said we have a more sure word of prophecy that you would do well to pay attention to like a light that shines in a dark place. It is the scriptures that God's Holy Spirit moved holy men of old uh, to write these scriptures down. And so Peter was testifying to the fact that we don't rely just upon the eyewitness that we have. We also have a more sure word. It is the word of God. Now, there's another example of this, uh, the fact that God reveals his glory in word and in person, and that's in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews is a very unique book in the way it begins. In the King James Version, the very first word is God. There's no other book in your Bible that begins with the word God. Now, Genesis begins in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. John, we talked about uh, in the beginning was the word. The word was with God. But only in Hebrews do we find it just start out with God. God, who at sundry times and in divers manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his see it, glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. And so not only is the brightness of God's glory and the express image of his person, but he is also the communicator of God's word. And so there we find the glory of God being revealed, not just in the person of Christ, but also in the words of Christ. Because it says God spoke in times past by the prophets. He's spoken to us in these last days by his son. And the simple point I'm trying to make, the observation is that you and I can see the glory of God, not just in his person, but also in his word. Even Moses, who got to see God in person, God said, that's not enough. I must proclaim my word as you see me. And then the third and final observation I have for you also comes from Exodus 34, and that is seeing God's glory changes us. Seeing God's glory changes us. I'm sure you're familiar with the story, but in Exodus 34, it says in verse 29, It came to pass when Moses came down from the Mount Sinai with the two tables of testimony 
uh, in Moses' hand when he came down from the mount that Moses wist or did not know, was not aware that the skin of his face shone while he was talking with him. And when Aaron and all the children of Israel saw Moses, behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come nigh to him. And so we're told that the results of Moses seeing God's glory was that his face was shining. It, literally, it was shining. It says that his face shined and that his face shined so much that the people made Moses wear a veil when he talked to them. Moses, this is too weird. It's too distracting. We've never seen anything like this. Your face is shining. We're going to ask that you cover that up when you talk to us because it's too distracting we can't look at it and we're not given really any more details than that all that we know is that after Moses spent time on the mountain in the glory glorious presence of God that it changed him and it was reflected on his face and his face shined in a way that it never had before and it wasn't just the the glow of inner peace or healthy living or dewy skin it was some unearthly shining that the people said, that's, that's, that's so offsetting that we need you to shield your face when you talk to us. Now, while our faces do not shine literally in the New Testament age today, Paul does use this same passage of Scripture as a reference to describe how the glory of God changes us in the New Testament. So if you would indulge me, turn once again to the New Testament, to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Oftentimes in the New Testament, they make references to an Old Testament passage of Scripture. Paul does that in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. He literally makes reference to what we just read and the glory uh, that Moses experienced. Now, it's a, it's a bit of a, a lengthy passage, but I, I think we need to read the entire thing, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 7 through 18, to get the full picture. Paul says, But if the ministration of death, written and engraven in stones, was glorious, so that the children of Israel could not steadfastly behold the face of Moses for the glory of his countenance, which glory was to be done away, how shall not the ministration of the Spirit be rather glorious? And so let me just break that down before we move on. Paul says, hey, look, if the Old Testament law, that law that Moses received on Mount Sinai, and the glory that came with it was so glorious that the people couldn't look at him. He says that was a, an administration of death, right? The law only condemned it could not give life. He says how much more glorious is what we have. How much more glorious is the New Testament, the grace of the New Testament in the Spirit of God compared to the old glory? He's not finished. He goes on. And he says, for if the ministration of condemnation, again, another reference to the Old Testament law, the ministration of condemnation be glory, 
how much more does the ministration of righteousness exceed in glory? So he's saying what they had in Israel under Moses, as glorious as it was, doesn't compare to what we have under Christ in glory. For even that which was made glorious had no glory in this respect, by the reason of the glory that excelleth. And so, again, he says, hey, look, the glory that it had really doesn't count as any glory because what we now have has replaced it, and it is so glorious that it makes the old glory look dim. That's quite a build-up, is it not? Well, verse 11, For if that which is done away was glorious... Much more that which remaineth is glorious. So again, he, he, he draws another comparison. And he says, if that was glorious and that one had a termination point, the law was going to be fulfilled in Jesus, and he's going to establish the New Testament, and this is going to be the continuing uh, cycle here, then, then how much more glorious is this that is continuing above that which was ended? Verse 12, seeing then that we have such hope, we use great plainness of speech. Okay, Paul, I might argue with that. That wasn't that plain. And, and not as Moses, which put a veil over his face, that the children of Israel could not steadfastly look to the end of that which is abolished, but their minds were blinded. For until this day... That same veil untaken away in the reading of the Old Testament, which veil is done away in Christ. And so he takes the veil that Moses used to shield the glory, and he says, hey, look, th this is like the veil that has been placed on the hearts of the Jews, that when they read the Old Testament, they don't see it. They don't see the glory of God in Christ. But in Christ, those who have received Christ, that veil is removed. Our eyes are open. We can see the glory he goes on verse 15 but even unto this day when Moses is read the veil is upon their hearts that's non-believing Jews he's referring to nevertheless when it when their heart when the Jewish heart shall turn to the Lord the veil shall be taken away now here's where it applies to you and I verse 17 and 18 now the Lord is that spirit and where the spirit of the Lord is there is liberty but we New Testament believers but we all, with an open face, an unveiled face, beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord, are changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. And so the Bible says that the glory of the New Testament in Christ far exceeds the glory of the Old Testament that Moses had. And that as we behold the face of Jesus in the pages of the New Testament, that we get to see his glory and that his glory changes us to reflect his image. And so we may read Exodus 33 and feel a little bit envious of Moses and say, man, I wish I could see the glory of God. I wish I could go up on a mountain and he'd put me in the cleft of the rock and pass by that I'd get to see that glorious shining. And Paul says, hey, let me tell you something. You've got a better view of the glory of God than Moses ever had because his glory is revealed not just in his person but in his word. And when his person did come, it was documented. So again, it is in the word so that you and I are 
staring into the face of the glory of God when we read His Word. And as we behold God's glory through the pages of Scripture, in the person of Jesus Christ, it has a transformative effect on us. Why do you think that pastors repeatedly say, read your Bible? You should read your Bible every day. You should be on a Bible reading program. Have you read your Bible this week? How are you doing on your Bible reading? It's not because we're the theological school teacher who wants to make sure you're doing your homework assignment. It's because the Bible transforms you and I. That when we put our nose in this book, we are staring into the glory of God. And you cannot come into the glory of God without it having a transformative effect on you. Just as Moses was transformed by being in the glorious presence of God on Mount Sinai, you and I are transformed as we see the glory of God in the pages of Scripture. And this is why we should read the Bible. This is why we should meditate upon scripture you know sometimes sadly i think we 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 get into our routine and we just read it right i got to get my chapters in and so i'm just gonna i got to get it done we're reading but we're thinking about other stuff and you know five minutes after we get done reading we might not be able to tell you exactly what it was and so the bible also tells us that we're to meditate on these things hey I, i i i'm a big proponent of if you can only take in one two three verses before you get overloaded and distracted then only take in one two or three verses and then spend some time meditating thinking about those verses what does this teach me about God what does this teach me about his grace what does this teach me about his redemption what does this teach me about his forgiveness what does this teach me about me meditating upon the word because when we do that we are actually focusing in on God Uh, we also ought to have a worship time in our prayer life Prayer is not just a a grocery list of needs that we come to God and say, God, I need this and I need that and sister needs this and brother needs that. But we're supposed to come into his presence with thanksgiving and into his courts with praise. We begin by worshiping him. And prayer is a wonderful time to do that, that as we have fed our souls with the word of God and we have opened up our view to see him, now we can pray and praise him and have that time in his presence presence and i'm telling you it is life changing it is transformative it will change our lives from the inside out and i don't know about you but i need to be less like justin and more like jesus and this is the way we do it it is by coming into the glorious presence of God. And the good news is that it's not just reserved for, uh, for, for a mountaintop experience like Moses had, right? Oh, I remember that one time. I felt like I was in the glory of the Lord. I'm telling you, I wish I could get back there again. No, you know what Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians? He says it's available to us as our daily fare. You have the eternal word of God. And every time that you come into it, it will change you into his image and so i encourage you let's approach the word this week now not as a task to be checked off of our list but as an entrance into the glory of the lord where god's glory can change us to reflect him let's pray dear lord i do thank you so much for instructing us on your glory We do not have any better words to describe it than your disciples of old. Lord, we understand that your glory 
is brighter than the sun. Uh, that if, uh, if you were to pull back the curtain of heaven and let it shine down today, we too would have to fall on our faces on the ground. That it would blind us to see it. But Lord, I am so thankful that you made a way for us, just as you did for Moses, to see your glory to see it in the pages of Scripture, to see the written record of the, the incarnate person of Christ, and that we, Lord, don't have to go along looking for a mountaintop experience. We can live on the mountain every single day as we spend time in your Word. Father, I pray that we would see the reading of the Word not just as a, as a uh, perfunctory effort that we've got to carry out, Lord, but that we would see it as a, as a moment of, of life-changing interaction with you. Father, I pray that we would just become consumed by you, that we would want to just spend time looking at you and examining you and studying you and drawing near to you, and that as we do, our hearts are saturated with your truth and our lives are filled with your presence and your glory begins to change us from the inside out into the likeness of Christ. Oh, Father, I pray that for each and every person this week, that every time they open their Bible, that they would see your glory and that your glory would have a transformative effect on their life. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.